when, a, when we say good morning to one another on a Sunday morning, it is no mere formality, for Sunday mornings are indeed good mornings. I drove over this morning uh, observing the sunrise. Did anyone catch that this morning? The sun came up with beautiful pinks and it's lovely, and I thought the Lord's mercies are new today. And here we are gathered as the body of Christ together, witnessing baptisms, singing with our hearts to the Lord, and now coming to His Word to exalt in Him in that way through the preaching and the hearing of the preaching of His Word. It is a good morning, and I greet you this morning. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn in them to John chapter 1. Our text today is going to be verses 43 through 51. We are finishing chapter 1. The Word of God says this. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee... He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the sons, on the son of man. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I, we pray together to you now that you might move through your spirit in the hearts of your people and do all the kind of work that you know needs to be done in our hearts. Specifically, we pray together that you would ignite in our hearts a blazing fire of faith in Christ, faith that can get us through the storms, faith that can get us through the trials, faith that compels us to cast down our idols, faith that gives us joy and hope and life. Pray that you do that this morning, Lord, through the preaching of your word. And I pray for your help, for clarity, for accuracy. Pray that you'd help me to do this well. And in my weakness, I pray that you will show yourself strong to your people through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Someone asked me just last week why I didn't combine this passage, verses 43 through 51, with the previous passage Pastor Thomas preached, verses 35 through 42. They appear to be saying nearly the same thing. They're kind of mirroring one another, mirroring one another. In both passages, Jesus is choosing 
his first disciples, so why split that up? Well, I have reasons, and they're more than just like so that I can say cheeky things about going slowly through the scriptures. I really feel like there's meaning here. Part of the reason is because there are all there is always more. There's always more than meets the eye to to the scriptures. Like there's always more than the surface read reveals in God's word. We read a passage of scripture and just give it a surface level of attention. When we do that, we miss we miss a lot. There's a lot of sweet truth here, and we would miss it if we just skimmed it. So we broke those passages up so that Pastor Thomas last week could go deep with, with that passage, and, and here we are today to go deep with this one. And the other reason is that there are some head-scratching statements, like difficult statements, especially in verses 43 through 51. Some things here don't seem very clear on first read, so we're taking them separately, both because of the richness in these passages and because of the need to see some difficult things more clearly. There are a few words in English that I really just love knowing. Do you have some words like that that you just love knowing? I love that I know this particular word. Do you have some of those? You need to have some. I love, I, one word that I love knowing is perspicuity. Isn't that a lovely word, perspicuity? I really do love the doctrine of perspicuity, but I also just plain love that word, perspicuity. I like how it sounds. I like that I know how to pronounce it, and that, that's how you pronounce it. But what I really like about the word perspicuity is the irony of it. You see, it is a word that is not clearly understood by most, and yet the word means clarity. Isn't that fun? Perspicuity. You need to work that into one of your conversations this week. Perspicuity. Seriously, what I really love about the doctrine of perspicuity, I, I, I love that the doctrine, this doctrine that the scriptures are meant to be understood. They're meant to be clearly understood. There is divine clarity about the word of God. The way that God has revealed himself to us is a way that is meant by God to be understood and believed and cherished. Now, not everyone, of course, believes this doctrine, the doctrine of perspicuity. But we Protestants, we do. We, we love this doctrine. We do not need a middleman when it comes to interpreting and understanding God's word. The Bible does not require, as some would have it, the magisterium of the church to make its meaning clear, as if without it, it is incomprehensible or impossible to know. God's word is meant to be understood. Of course, that does not mean that all of the scriptures are easily understood, and it doesn't mean that we don't have to work very hard often to understand the meaning of the Bible. It doesn't preclude helping one another to see and understand the word. It doesn't preclude preaching and teaching. It does not mean that all the parts of Scripture are equally clear. No, perspicuity only means that the Scriptures are meant to be understood. And I believe that, and I love that. And this passage this week is an example of that. There are some hard parts in this passage, difficult to understand on first read. If we're to take this seriously, we need to do some digging. 
But the rich reward, the treasure from that digging are that the scriptures become clear to us and we focus the lens of this passage through study and careful thinking and what becomes clear is glorious and good. So that's what we're doing today. We're, we're trying to make this clear, dig into what you might have just read over in your reading plan. We're going to try to go deep. So I'm going to do something a little differently today. I'm going to show you how, I'm using a lot of metaphors, sorry, mixing a lot, but I'm going to show you how the sausage is made, as it were. I want to show you the questions that I had to ask this text so that it would become clear. That's what we do in Bible study. We ask questions. We, we query the text, and we want to know the answers. And so that's what we're doing today. I asked specifically five pertinent questions, and I'm going to that's how I'm going to walk through this with you today. Five pertinent questions. And we'll try to see the backstory of each of those questions and then press towards the answers. The questions are these, okay? Why does Jesus say to Nathaniel, Behold, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit? Like, what does that even mean? Number two, why does Nathaniel say, You are the Son of God, the King of Israel? And number three, why did, what does Jesus mean by you will see heaven open and angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man? What does that mean? And why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? Those are real questions, right? To really get at the heart of this question, this text, we're going to ask those. And then finally, number five, why did John, the writer of this gospel, include this in this narrative? So those five questions we have to work through if we're going to see this passage clearly and be helped by it. And that'll be the way we walk through it. Five questions, five backstories, and five answers. The first question is, why Jesus, when he sees Nathanael coming, says, look, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, before we answer that, let's do some backstory on this. Jesus, in verse 43, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. I think that's the best way to understand this even though some translations are less than clear, and the Greek grammar is admittedly a little unspecific here. But I think it's Jesus who is deciding. Jesus is deciding, and I think it's Jesus, I think it's Jesus who finds Philip. Jesus finds Philip. And oh, how I want to make a really big deal of the hint that I think is there in that passage. Jesus found Philip. That is a wonderful reality for Christians. Ultimately, we don't find him. He finds us. Or as this passage goes, he finds us first. Verse 45, Philip also speaks of finding Jesus, but not first. Jesus found Philip first, and I love that. God, in his grace and mercy, finds us when we're lost. And if he did not do that finding work, his ultimate and initial work, we would stay lost. How sweet a hint is in verse 43. Nevertheless, I won't make a big deal of that hint today. It's coming up in John. It's coming up in John, not in whispers, not in hints, but in bold declarations and forthright statements 
It is, the unmistak- it is unmistakable in the Gospel of John. God takes the initiative in salvation. Our new life depends. Our new life depends ultimately on his finding work, his prerogative, his ultimacy in our salvation. It will be good for our souls when we walk through those passage, passages. But today it's just a hint, and I'll leave it at that. Jesus finds Philip, and then Philip goes and finds Nathaniel. This is how, as Pastor Thomas so well preached last week, discipleship works. God, by his grace, finds us, and then we go and we find others. And God uses us as the means to find others, just as he used other people as the means to find you. We go and we declare truth about Jesus to them. That's what Philip does here, right? He, he goes and he says true things about Jesus Discipleship is the means God uses to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And here we are, only in chapter 1 of John, and we are seeing that really play out. Now, Philip roots his call to Nathanael in the Old Testament. Notice verse 45. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Moses, the law, the prophets, I mean, that's shorthand for the Old Testament. It's the Bible that they had. It is the scriptures, and those Old Testament scriptures wrote about Jesus of Nazareth. Of course, you, you, you would immediately want to know where, where, what are we talking about here, where, which passages, which passages specifically does Philip have in mind, where? And the answer, of course, is Everywhere. Everywhere, from Genesis on, the scriptures speak of Jesus. The gospel is a massive oak tree of New Testament truths rooted in the soil, the deep soil of the Old Testament. I'm not one to make shameless plugs in sermons from a podcast I'm personally involved with. But you might want to go and listen to the Sound and Faith podcast that dropped last Friday. In fact, you should probably like and subscribe and listen every week to that podcast. Last week, Pastor Thomas and I answered the question, what is biblical theology? And we recorded it before I did my work on this passage. I did some of it already, but I, before I did the lion's share of the work on this passage, we recorded that and it just blew my mind how, how, how relevant it was to what we're doing today. Indeed, this, I mean, this passage is so rich in biblical theology. It, it's part of the big oak tree of truth, the gospel, with its roots down into the Old Testament. The Bible, all of it, the Old Testament, is about Jesus. Moses and the law and the prophets all point to Jesus. Not everyone knows and believes this, of course. Many in his own day were blind to this reality. In fact, they would read the scriptures. They would read the Bible. They would become experts in the scriptures and not see that reality. They would search the scriptures and not see Jesus. Jesus said as much in John 5, 39 through 40. He said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they scriptures that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
The Bible is about Jesus. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say it's not mainly about you. It's about Jesus. The Bible is mainly about Jesus and his love for you. Philip grounds his claim, all his claims in the Old Testament. We have found him, the one the Old Testament promises. He is Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel reacts badly to that news. He's from Nazareth, and it's not clear why. I don't really know why he disparages Nazareth as he does Nathaniel. I, I don't know why he does that. Perhaps there was a town rivalry going on. Maybe the Nazareth Nighthawks had just beaten the Bethsaida Bears at the hockey game the Friday before. Or maybe Nathaniel was aware of the prophecy that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, and he just hasn't understood how everything works yet. We're not sure why he disparages Nazareth, but I do, love, I do love Philip's response. He says, come and see. Isn't that good? Come and see. What a great way to witness to a doubter. Come and see. Come, friend, and you will see. You can, you can steal that if you want. Use it in your personal witness and your evangelism with others who disparage the word of God, who disparage Christ. Say, Come and see. Why don't you come to my house and see how God has so radically transformed my family as we have dinner together. I'll invite other Christians. And you can come and see. You can come and see how God works in his people. Come to church with me. Come and see. What a great way to witness. Use that phrase this week on an unbeliever in your life. Nathaniel comes. That's the backstory. He goes to Jesus. And when Nathaniel's in view, Jesus says about him, look, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. What a statement for Jesus to make. I mean, it sounds like a sweeping compliment of both Nathaniel's pedigree and his character, and it is a positive assessment of both, but there's something behind this. What's behind calling him a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit? And the answer is rooted in the Old Testament. As some of you know, many of you know, Israel is the name that God gave Jacob in Genesis 32 after he wrestled with God. And he became the name of the people who descended from Jacob. Israel's sons were called Israel. Jacob was one of the patriarchs of the Hebrew people, and the people who came from him were called Israelites. An Israelite is a son of Israel. So Jesus is essentially saying to Nathanael, look, here comes a true son of Israel. Now consider with me what the name Jacob means, because I think that's key to understanding the second part of this declaration. Why Jesus said to him, in whom there is no deceit. So, i just make a side note before I say this. Uh, Jacob is a popular name today. Uh, there might be a few people here whose name is Jacob. I think you should not be offended by what I'm about to say. In fact, I will give you a good reason for why this should be really good news for you if your name is Jacob and not bad news. But the name Jacob means supplanter or cheater. 
or deceiver. After Jacob tricked Isaac, he stole Esau's blessing. Esau even said in Genesis 27, 36, is, not, isn't, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. So Jacob means cheater or supplanter or deceiver. And again, you have, if you have a child named that, or if that's your name, don't be sad by this knowledge. Be happy in Jesus. Jacob truly lived up to his name at many points in his life. And yet, and yet, this is what I love about this, God faithfully showed his love and his sovereign saving grace to Jacob. It's good if your name is Jacob. There's a sense in which all of our names are Jacob. It ought to be a reminder, if your name is Jacob, to you of the sweetness of the gospel. God saves Jacob's. Jacob have I loved, he says. So let's put those two things together, okay? Jesus sees Nathanael coming, and he says, look, look, behold, an Israelite, a true son of Israel, in whom there is no deceit, in whom there is no Jacob. I think this is more than both Nathanael could know at this time, or that he had yet experienced, but he would. He would experience the transforming grace of God the way that Jacob had. Are you seeing the roots of this passage sinking down deep into the Old Testament? There's more. So, question number one, the answer, why did, why did Jesus call Nathaniel a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit? He did that to open Nathaniel's eyes and to awaken his faith and to blow his mind with God's grace and root all of that deeply into the Bible. First question down, four to go, and I'll be quicker with the other four. Question number two. Why does Nathaniel respond with, you are the son of God, the king of Israel? So Nathaniel, the backstory here, Nathaniel is surprised that Jesus spoke as if he knew him. Nate, can we, can we call him Nate? Nathaniel's hard to say. Nate was looking at someone whom he'd never seen before, and the man was speaking like he knew him. How did Jesus know him? That's, that's a good question. And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Yeah, we have no idea what was going on under the fig tree. Just don't know. Maybe Philip that morning had his devotions there under a fig tree. Maybe in anguish he was pouring out his heart in prayer under a fig tree that morning. Maybe he was seeking the face of God. Maybe he was confessing his doubts or his struggles or his sins under a fig tree. Maybe he was feeling like he was under that fig tree all alone. You ever done that? Gone to the Lord? Opened your Bible? Prayed? And felt like you were the only one there? Maybe that's what he was doing that morning under the fig tree. We don't, we don't know. Conjecture. Whatever he was doing, he, he, he was surely alone or, thought, or so he thought. So when Jesus said, I saw you there, his mind was blown. Nate then asks, how do you know me, Jesus? And Jesus, in essence, responds, don't you get it, Nathaniel? I have always known you. 
Isn't that sweet to your soul, friend? Jesus finds us. He knows us. And the reality is, he has always known us. Before the fig tree, indeed, the scriptures say, before the foundation of the world, he knew your name. He knows you. You are known by God. Oh, rejoice, you who feel forgotten and forsaken this morning. You who feel so lost in your sin or so buried by the dirt of your past. You who come to the table in hard times to fellowship with God, to seek God and feel like you're the only one there. You might not see anyone but friends. He sees you. He knows you. That's the backstory. Nathaniel then makes his confession. You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And both of those titles are references to the Messiah, to the Christ. The Son of God means that he is God. The King of Israel means that he is, wait for it, the King of Israel. Remember, Jesus had told Nathanael that he's a true Israelite. And now, in turn, Nathanael is calling Jesus the King of Israel. In a way, this is Nathanael saying, you are my king. You're my king. You are the true king of Israel. I'm a true Israelite. You're the true king of Israel. You are my king. So why did Nathanael call Jesus, the Son of God, the King of Israel. He said this as a confession of his faith in Christ, the one he had longed for to come, his Savior, the Son of God, his King had come. Question number three. Why does Jesus say, you will see heaven open and angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man? Without the Old Testament, friends, that makes no sense. That makes no sense. This is the greater thing that he is promising that Nathaniel would see. It's the backstory. Nathaniel's mind is blown, his faith is awakened, and Jesus says, Is that all it takes for you to believe, Nathaniel? Is that it? Now, I think that's a commendation, not a rebuke. He isn't saying, I haven't given you enough to believe yet, Nathaniel, but wait and you'll see more. No, no, that's not what he's saying. He is saying, you believe already, even though it didn't take that much for me to light the fire of your faith. But you just wait, Nathaniel. You just wait. You're going to see more than this. And what is it that he will see? Heaven opened. Angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. Now, if you've read Genesis, you know what this is about, right? We know. And suddenly everything in this passage makes sense. All the ties to Jacob become clear in verse 51. This points to a dream that Jacob dreamed that we often call Jacob's ladder. Genesis 28.12 says, we're not going to display it, I didn't add it, but Genesis 28.12 says, and he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. The next verse goes with, on with the dream, God, God's assurances that he will keep his covenant with Jacob. And you who are familiar with the Old Testament story, have you ever wondered what that dream was really about? I mean, a ladder on earth, angels going up and down on it, like what's that about, right? Strange. 
A short-term meaning is a reassurance to Jacob that God will keep his promise. Indeed, the promise has the full guarantee of the God of heaven. God's promises are the stuff of heaven and angels. He will keep his promise to Jacob. The full meaning, the full meaning is that one day that promise and all the promises of God will find their yes and their amen in Christ. In John 1, 51, there is no ladder mentioned. No ladder. In, in, in Genesis 28, there's a ladder on which they're ascending and descending. In John 1, 51, there is the Son of Man on whom they're ascending and descending. He's the ladder. The, the Son of Man will be the decisive link between heaven and earth. That's what you're going to see, Nathaniel. You will see God in Christ uniting all things in heaven and on earth in the person of Jesus. Why does Jesus say this? Jesus says this to blow Nathaniel's mind with the glorious, saving purposes of God in Christ. Okay, question number four. Why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? The backstory to this is that there are a lot of titles that have already been attributed to Jesus in the book of John already, just right up to these verses. He is the Word. He is the true light. He is the life of men. He is the Son. He is the only God. He is the Lamb of God. Philip calls him, or Nathaniel calls him Rabbi, the Son of God, and the King of Israel. A lot of titles already. Those are all right titles of Jesus, and they all tell us something about him. They can all be unpacked with good meat. There's truth there to be understood about Jesus in the names. The Lamb of God means that he's the sacrifice for our sins. The Son of God means that he is God. The King of Israel means that he is king. But then Jesus calls himself this title, which he will use most often to refer to himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. Why? I think he does so for two reasons. One reason is to show us his humiliation. And the other reason is to show us his glory. He is the Son of Man. And as such, he will suffer and die for our sins. The humanity of Jesus is certainly in view in that title. Jesus has to be truly man, truly suffer, truly die for the sins of his people. Just as the Son of God refers to his deity, the Son of Man refers to his humanity. And in that way, his humility, God becoming man, the Son of God taking on flesh and becoming a man. He is the Son of Man. Just a few chapters from now, which we'll get to in, by 2029, Jesus will say, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, the title points to his humiliation. It points to his cross. The Son of Man will be lifted up. He will be nailed to a cruel cross. He will die there. He will die there. Nathaniel will see angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. Jesus will be the decisive link between man and God, and he will do so through his cross. 
the title, the Son of Man, speaks to his humility. And it points to his glory. And I know that because of where this title originates. This has an Old Testament origin. It originates in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. And I'll read that for you so that you can see it refers to his glory. Daniel 7, 13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven there came like a son of man, and he who came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Why does Jesus use this title, the Son of Man? Because it points to his humility, to his humanity, to his suffering and dying on the cross. And because it points to his ultimate glory. That's why. These are the greater things that you will see. You will see Jesus live a sinless life. You will see Jesus die a sinner's death. And you will see Jesus triumphantly raised from the grave. And unite all things in heaven and on earth together in himself. Greater things indeed. Infinitely greater. Do you believe? So let me wrap this up with one final question. Question number five. Why did John include this in his gospel? Why did he include the choosing of Philip and Nathaniel and this interaction? This back, the backstory is that the gospel of John is rooting the truths of this messianic hope deeply in the soil of the Old Testament. You can see that by now, I hope. I've mentioned that several times. John is making it plain and clear that Jesus is none other than the promised Christ. God himself, the one who was in the beginning, who came to earth as a sacrifice for sin, destroying sin and death by his death and resurrection and giving life to his people, giving life to all who believe. So why is he including this particular part of the narrative in this gospel? And I think the clear answer is provided in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, which says, Now Jesus did many other things, many other signs, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why is this passage, John 1, 43 through 51, included here? Why this telling of Jesus finding Philip and Philip finding Nathaniel? Why do you see Philip telling Nate, we found the one that Moses and the law and the prophets wrote about, come and see. Why did he include Jesus saying, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob? Why the promise of seeing these wonderful greater things? Why? The answer is to blow your mind with wonder and awe and to ignite in your heart a blazing, unquenchable fire of faith and hope in Jesus Christ alone, the Son of God, the Son of Man, our Savior, and our King. It's written that you might believe and that, friends, by believing you may have 
life in his name. Let's pray. There are so many glorious, wonderful truths here for us, included in your word for our edification and for our good. Lord, we pray together now that you would help us to fan the flame of our faith in Christ, our confidence. Perhaps for some here, a trial has made them distracted and doubting the truth of your goodness and your grace. Maybe some feel forgotten. Maybe some feel so buried by their past that they can't imagine that you would love them, a Jacob like them. Lord, I pray through your word, you would ignite a fire of faith. You know us. You have loved Jacob. And you give us life in your name. Apply your word to the hearts of your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.